welcome to this episode of Physicians Weekly Podcast. My name is Dr. Rachel Giles from Medical Medical Publishers in collaboration with Physicians Weekly. This week's episode has two great interviews that we're pretty certain you'll love. Welcome to Physicians Weekly. March is National Kidney Month, which brings awareness to kidney health, which in turn is a global public health burden. For this last episode of Physicians Weekly Podcast this March of 2022, We wanted to highlight a recent publication about the use of diuretics in patients with chronic kidney disease, or CKD, with a prevalence of about 11% in the United States alone. Diuretics are useful in the management of most patients with CKD because they reduce ECF volume, they lower blood pressure, they potentiate the effects of ACE inhibitors and ARBs and other antihypertensive agents, and they reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease and CKD. Physicians Weekly Senior Editor Marta Kelly interviews Dr. Ellen Esco of the Kaiser Permanente of Northern California, whose team looked at the effect of diuretics on renal outcomes among nearly 48,000 adults with chronic kidney disease. Loop and thiazide class diuretics are an important part of guideline-directed medical therapy for patients with CKD, yet diuretics can also be associated with acute elevations in serum creatinine and electrolyte derangements. Whether diuretics result in direct kidney injury versus benign hemoconcentration of serum creatinine remains controversial, and that was really the rationale behind this large study. The Physicians Weekly Podcast provides thought leader insights on the latest medical news, clinical trial coverage, and advances in medicine and healthcare. But first, March is also famous for Match Day from the National Resident Matching Program. Match Day is when domestic and international medical school students and graduates learn in which U.S. residency programs they will be able to start training. Naturally, this isn't extremely important to the careers of all residents, and it is coupled with high stress and anxiety, as well as questions about how best to prepare. Some recent participants in Match set up a resident-led platform called Inside the Match, with information, help reviewing your applications, and a podcast series to provide everything you wanted to know about the residency match process, but we're too afraid to ask. Physicians Weekly interviews psychiatry resident and co-founder of Inside the Match, Simona Bernstein, who was previously recognized as a social entrepreneur in Forbes' 30 Under 30 prestigious list. She is truly a mover and a shaker, so enjoy listening. Visit physiciansweekly.com forward slash podcast. So thanks so much for joining us. Could, could I get you to introduce yourself for a minute and tell us what you're trying to do? My name is Simone Bernstein, and I'm a third-year resident physician at Washington University in St. Louis in psychiatry. And I am the co-founder of Inside the Match, which is a platform that helps provide free guidance to applicants that are going through the match process. And so what kind of people are interested in the service and how does that match actually facilitate their choices? So commonly, we have a lot of fourth-year medical school students, MDs, and DOs that are going through the match process that are learning through our platform about how to be most competitive for the match, whatever specialty they may be going into. But we also help those that are medical graduates, like international medical graduates, that are also going through the journey of applying to different specialties. So when you are a fourth-year medical school student or a medical graduate looking for different programs to apply to, our 
goal is to provide free and transparent information about applying to different specialties from the idea that program directors and leaders in medical education can really provide support to applicants as they're going through this really stressful journey. It is seriously stressful. Could you describe a typical like client or, or a person who's interested in this? What are they looking for and, and what sort of obstacles are they encountering? So when you're interested in going through the match process, you're trying to apply for a specific specialty. And some people are applying to more than one, depending on the competitiveness of their application and their specialty. So typically, the ERAS application in the United States is due in September. And so the summer before the application is due, people are working on their personal statements. They're working on their CV. In order to help improve their application, they're making sure that all components of that application are finalized and edited, and then they submit that application in September, and they apply to a specific number of programs based upon their interest and their competitiveness, and then their applications are sent out in September, and they start to receive interviews. When they receive interviews, they're going through the interview process and anywhere between September and January, and then they're submitting their rank order list in the United States, and then March is match day when they all find out where they'll be going. Right. Do you have any data from this year's match day? So this year's match day, all of the data has been shown through NRMP. They publicize that and it's available to anyone to be able to look at every single specialty, the number of applicants that applied that were MDs versus DOs, and you can see how many program spots there were available. And so this data showcases that people are applying to lots of different places. There's a a very large number of people who aren't matching as well through what this data showcases. And so our goal is to not only help those who match, but also help those who have not been able to match this cycle and figure out ways in which they can either improve their application for the next cycle or possibly find a spot in what we call the scramble, where there are unfilled spots that are available to people who are looking for a spot to start in July. Right. And I know that this is probably beyond the scope of your particular project, but how has the pandemic affected this process in general? So the pandemic was the reason why we even started Inside the Match. So in September of 2020, we recognized that there was an issue. There were so many applicants that were questioning how to even go through the match process when interviews were now virtual. So with COVID, interviews switched from in-person to virtual, which created a lot of anxiety and stress for programs and for applicants. So there were lots of programs that were trying to figure out how to market themselves to applicants. And there were a lot of applicants trying to figure out how many programs to apply to, and then also how to apply to programs in cities they may have never visited. And so this caused a lot of stress and angst amongst a lot of applicants. And so when I recognized there was an issue, my husband and I decided we would create a platform to be able to assist people to provide the information to be able to help them as they go through the match. Great. Well, this is data actually that you're generating as well. How can you use that data to feed back into the system and improve it? So our goal is to be able to figure out how we can actually make this match process better. There are lots of issues with it, and the match process has a lot of people that are under control in regards to how we can actually make those changes. And so our goal as a free platform that does have a lot of information from applicants is to disseminate this information to program directors and to programs and showcase what anxiety and stress 
really exist among the applicants and then what information we can do to improve the process. For example, we really advocate for programs to be able to provide as much information as they can about what sorts of step scores they might be looking for or um, what sorts of applicants really they are looking for within their program because this will help be able to tailor the applicants that are then applying to programs. So in order for people to determine where they want to go, they want to be able to learn as much information as they can. And unfortunately, a lot of websites are outdated. A lot of resources like Frida, which is created by the AAMC, are also outdated and don't receive actually current information from programs. And so we provide this information to programs and really advocate for people to continuously update any resources that they have to make it easier for applicants to know what to do with the information in regards to where to apply. Right. And so now that the pandemic seems to be winding down a little bit and some of the sanctions that were in place have loosened up, do you do you think that you'll be able to fine tune this even more perhaps? Yes. So our goal is to be able to continue to provide up-to-date information. We have a blog that has over a hundred blog posts about preparing for this entire process. We have a podcast with interviews with different program directors and residents where we can really tailor what the application cycle looks like and what changes to how the applicant is going to put together their application. This upcoming year, there's going to be changes that have already been discussed, including what we call preference signaling. And so this is something that has been done in a few specialties in the past, but now it's going to be even done in a greater number for match 2023. So we recognize that as there's these new changes being implemented, we want to be able to provide that information to applicants and showcase ways that they can improve their application or strengthen the way in which their application currently looks to be able to hopefully match into the specialty that they're interested in. Terrific. You also mentioned that there was a podcast. Could I get you to plug that a bit more? <laughs> and what, what can you tell me about the podcast? What's it called? And uh, these are podcast listeners. Yes. So uh, we started Inside the Match in September of 2020, and we started it as a podcast. And so we have over 129,000 podcast listens of 115 episodes. And so that was really how our base started, um, was through a podcast and through social media. And then of October of 2021, we launched our website. And so really what we've noticed is that this has created a community of people that are willing to help each other and provide it in a platform that has zero commercial interests and has the ability to provide all free opportunities for those that are seeking out information about the match. There's no charge. There's the idea that we want to be able to provide mentorship and guidance through really every resource that we have available to us, to those that are going through this process. It's really great what you're doing. So it's really a clearly unmet need and you've done a creative job trying to address it. So I love it. So what are the next big challenges? How do you, how do you make this even more successful? So our goal is to really affect change. As you described, there's lots of data that the NRMP discloses about the whole match process. And there's a lot of people that are advocating for change and we hope to be a part of that. We may not be one of the professional organizations like the AEMC or the ACGME, but our goal is inside the match is to be able to showcase that from a resident-led platform, people that have recently gone through this match journey, we want to be able to showcase that we have all of these ideas from every person that's messaged us asking us for ways that we think we can help. Our goal is that maybe one day um, someone will listen in to some of the ideas that applicants have 
have to try to continuously improve this really stressful match process. Well, thank you so much, Simona. I think this is fascinating stuff and I really wish you the best of luck and I'm going to encourage everyone I know to, to take a look at this. It's fantastic. Thank you. We really appreciate that. Hello. I'm here today with Dr. Alan Esco, Regional Medical Director of the Clinical Trials Program at Kaiser Permanente Northern California and Associate Director of the Division of Research at the Permanente Medical Group. We will be discussing his recent paper, Loop and Thiazide Diuretic Use and the Risk of Chronic Kidney Disease Progression, uh, that was published in BMJ Open. Dr. Go, welcome. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. What makes loop and thiazide diuretic use and the risk of CKD progression an important topic to study? What needs existed for your research? It's an excellent question. I think one of the things that's important to recognize is that the, the number of people with chronic kidney disease is increasing both within the U.S. and internationally. And these are medications that are used very frequently in this population. And yet there are not really definitive studies about the best way to use these versus alternative medications to, to treat things like high blood pressure um, and other things that these patients actually experience and whether or not uh, the choice actually impacts the risk of progression of their underlying kidney disease. Can you briefly explain what you and your colleagues set out to determine with the study and how you went about uh, conducting your research? Yes, our, our project was based here in Kaiser Permanente of Northern California. So it's a large integrated healthcare delivery system in which we provide comprehensive inpatient, emergency, and outpatient care. And we identified actually all adults who had uh, underlying chronic kidney disease, which is defined by a reduced estimated glomerular filtration rate. And then we identified people who during the follow-up period either started a, a diuretic and the type of diuretic, either loop or thiazide, versus not, and then followed them for whether or not their kidney disease progressed uh, to a more serious level. Uh, what findings from your study are important to stress to our physician readers, particularly nephrologists? Yes, I think nephrologists, as well as primary care and, and cardiology physicians, uh, do struggle in terms of what is the best way to treat these patients. They're often quite complicated. So I think there's a couple important things. One is, is that we found that even if you just look at not accounting for any differences in the patients who were treated with diuretics or not, those who did receive diuretics are just were sicker. And, uh, and once we accounted for that, though, is that neither the receipt of the diuretic or the type of diuretic seemed to impact whether or not you were more or less likely to go on to either end-stage kidney disease or just more severe progression of your kidney disease. And that's really important because of these different choices we have for medications. And so I think that that's important to provide some reassurance to the people treating these patients right now. What are the implications of your research? How would you like to see uh, physicians incorporate your findings into their practices? Yeah, so while we feel that this, this, uh, these findings do in fact reassure physicians that they can use these medications, we do need to acknowledge that this was not a definitive randomized controlled trial. And so I believe that that's important, that despite our best statistical and methodologic efforts, that we still believe we need one or more to address this question and answer, the, answer it sort of definitively uh, so that we can help guide physicians and their choices and patients and the kinds of medications they receive to treat, again, their high blood pressure, underlying kidney disease, and other complications. 
And finally, what would you like to see future research focus on in this area? What needs still exist? Yes. So as I alluded to, I think that um, both understanding whether the use of diuretics and the type of diuretic, either alone or in combination with other medicines, really should be tested in um, probably multiple randomized control trials in people across the entire spectrum of chronic kidney disease severity. That's, I think, what we need to do next and to be able to, to generate that, that more uh, rigorous and definitive evidence. Thank you very much uh, for participating in the interview. My pleasure. Thank you very much. That's all the time we have for this podcast. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and stay healthy. If you would like to suggest a topic for discussion or contribute to Physicians Weekly, please email pwpodcast at physiciansweekly.com.